Exterior, Caulfield Streets, night. Find Tessa, 33, inside a beat-up 1990s Corolla. Everything she owned is in the back seat. Welcome to 10 Pages, the podcast that helps emerging screenwriters workshop their scripts. We're your hosts, Cam Clark and Justin P. Bechtold. Thanks, Cam. Our guest writers today are Ted Janet and Hayley Ricketson. Ted, Hayley, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Now, Ted and Hayley are writing a six-part comedy series called Tessa 2.0. Sounds great. Let's jump into the first 10 pages. Exterior, Caulfield, streets, various night. Find Tessa, 33, inside a beat-up 1990s Corolla. Everything she owns is in the back seat. Interior, exterior, car, Balaclava Junction, night. Tessa drives down Balaclava Road. It's late. There's no one on the road. She turns into a driveway and does a three-point turn. She drives 100 metres, turns into another driveway and completes another three-point turn. She drives another 100 metres and again and again. Finally, she pulls up along exterior Caulfield Park night. This is when we get the clearest look at Tessa. She's tired, haggard, plainly dressed. Looks like she's mourning in slow motion. She taps a smartphone on her passenger seat. A message plays. Doran in voiceover. Hey sister, sucks about your job. What in God's name did you have to do to get sacked from the public service? Uh, It's an outrage really. Hey listen, I got a lead on a job. Guy I went to uni with runs an NGO looking for someone to do data entry. It's nothing special, but I know he'll hire you as a personal favor to me. You at mum's tonight? She says you moved in, but she hasn't seen you. Are you seeing someone? Tessa rolls her eyes as if. Anyway, let me know about the job. Times are tough. I take what I can get. Tessa sobs. How did I get here? It's a good story if you've got the time. You probably don't. You probably have things to do, places to be, people to care about. Don't let me keep you. I'm not that interesting. She wipes away tears. If only you knew what was about to happen. Interior therapist's office day. Tessa twirls her hair, slouching in the patient's chair. She looks up at Dr. Lowen, an older white guy with a full beard covering his face, including every inch of his chin. He rests a pad and pen on his knee. Tessa. I know, he looks like a Muppet, but so did Freud. They're in an apartment building in a home office with light pouring in from an open balcony next to a built-in desk with a family portrait. Lowen, wife and kids, presented on top. Lowen starts like he's about to speak, but instead just shuffles in his chair. Tessa raises her eyebrows, almost like a challenge. You first. He clicks his pen. She leans forward, elbows on the inside of her knees, and looks up into his eyes. He nods knowingly and makes a note. She cracks. I can't pay for this. Lowen. Hmm? Tessa. I can't pay for this. This is expensive. You're expensive, and you're not saying anything. I'm saying something. I'm saying something right now. I lost my job. I can't... This is an expensive exercise. (laughs) What do you mean you lost your job? You work in the public service? Aha! Lowen catches himself and turns serious. Remember HR Helen? Uh, yes. Your nemesis? We had a disagreement? Interior. DHHS comms department office. Flashback day. HR Helen, a middle-aged woman with big hair and wearing ruffled blouse, shouts into her phone bare feet on her desk next to her mug of tea. Reveal Tessa at the adjacent desk. HR Helen. She has to understand. Those project quotas are just not reasonable unless there's justifiable FTEs for the full development period. Tessa slowly rises, approaches HR Helen. HR Helen. I can move ACPD, but I can't do it without PRHE. She yanks HR Helen's phone out of her hand and drops it into her full mug of tea. Tessa. STFU. Interior therapist's office. Continuous. Lowen. That got you fired. I think it was the last straw. Interior DHHS comms department office flashback day. 
Tessa on the phone at her desk. Nope, still not working. Tessa pours coffee on her keypad. Interior therapist's office, continuous. What's wrong with me? I hated that job, but there was nothing that bad about it. And kids are slaving away in sweatshops, but precious Tessa can't cope with a little bureaucracy. I've had to bail on my housemates. Looks like I'm moving back home. I mean, it's fine. I'm only 33. I can't decide if I live with mum. Interior, Bucharest household, kitchen, fantasy, night. Tessa wakes in front of a toaster. She's wearing a dressing gown. We're in a cluttered, falling apart, three-bedroom unit in St Kilda. A single white slice pops up. She eyes a field of condiments and jars. Jam, Vegemite, and more. Before she can make a decision, Chana off screen. Toast. Toast. We've just had dinner and you're eating toast. In barges Chana Bukras, 50s, Israeli and loud, the most anxiety-inducing person on earth. What's the matter with you? I buy all these fucking apples and all anyone ever wants to eat is bread. Eat an apple! Chana touches Tessa's hair. You sick or something? Before Tessa can respond, Chana's mobile rings. She looks at the screen. It's that restorative artist with a fucking attitude. I don't want to talk to him. Fuck him. She answers, now screaming in Hebrew. What do you want? I told you we don't want to work with you. And then in English. Why? Because. Because why? Fucking, I'll tell you because why. Back to Hebrew. Because of your fucking attitude, that's why. Because people don't like seeing your dead granny's face looking like a dog ate it. Because you are useless. Because I hate you. This continues in the background. Tessa returns to the field of condiments. She doesn't take one. Instead, she takes a bite of the dry toast, chews it slowly, opens the cover below the sink and drops the remaining toast into the bin. Interior therapist's office, continuous. And then if I went to my dad's house. Interior burger household, fantasy day. An expensive polished family home in Caulfield. Tessa enters through the front door. Hello? The sound of her voice echoes through the hall. She looks up the stairway, sees her punk sister with a shaved head. Ilana, 14, wearing headphones and rocking out on the landing. Tessa waves, but Ilana doesn't notice. Tessa walks past the study, peers in. Her stepmother, Ruth, sits at an oversized desk with a stack of cooking books and a large duster. She dusts a page, turns it, dusts the next page and repeats. Tessa's about to talk when, no, she changes her mind and moves on down the hall. She sees Lionel, her father, on the end of an eight-seater couch at the far end of a deep living room. He's bespeckled and buried inside a herald sun. Dad? He doesn't notice. Dad? He leaps back like he's seen a ghost, a long teased out silence. He nods a greeting and then returns to his paper. Interior therapist's office continuous. Either way, I'm screwed, right? Interior, exterior, car, balaclava junction, flashback, repeat scene, night. Tessa drives down balaclava road. It's late. There's no one on the road. I don't have a home where I can just be me. She turns into a driveway and does a three-point turn. She drives 100 metres, turns into a driveway and completes another three-point turn. She drives another 100 metres and again. I don't even know who that is. Interior therapist's office, continuous. Tessa tears up. So you spent the whole night in your car? Exterior Caulfield Park night. Tessa leaves her car and wanders down the path towards the pond. She surveys the area before settling on a single duck in the distance. Ducky. She wades into the pond up to her waist and towards the duck. Slowly, carefully, she ushers it towards land. Moments later, Tessa rests her head by the edge of the pond, cuddling the duck and dozing off. Night turns to exterior Caulfield Park day. Quack. Tessa wakes up. Interior therapist's office, continuous. Yes. Lowen considers, gets up, paces, and then leans on his desk. How long have we been doing this? Three years, give or take? 184 weeks. Tessa looks downcast. I don't want to come down on you, but do you remember what I asked you in the first session? What do you want? 
And you said, I don't know. Right. And I said, pretty soon we were going to have to identify some goals, even little ones, even seemingly insignificant ones, because I needed something to work towards or else you'd be not looking where you're going as a lifestyle. Right. Where are you going, Tessa? A long beat. Nowhere. Hmm. I'm not going anywhere. Neither are you. Neither is anyone. You work here, prop people up, but don't tell me you're not just as sorry as the rest of us. Lonely, craving things that when you do get are never good enough. Running from what scares you. She turns red and cries. I'm so tired of playing these intellectual games with you. Trying to come to terms to justify the self-serving delusion that life has any meaning. That there's any hope. Hope for what, anyway? Hope that it wasn't all for nothing? Newsflash, we all end up the same way. Lewin looks anxious. He starts to speak. No, stop it. Whatever you're about to say is just an excuse to not look into the void. We tell good stories about meaning and purpose, but that's all they are, stories. Lowen straightens up his tie and quietly turns his family portrait face down. The only way out, the only thing that makes any sense is suicide. Lowen takes a long, deep breath. Finally, must say, you make some very good points. It takes a moment for her to register. She looks up, bewildered. What? No, I think you're right. I think I agree. He opens the balcony door. What the fuck are you doing? He dives over. No! She leaps up, but he's too far away. There's a thud outside, followed by the sound of a car alarm. Tessa brings her hand to her mouth. She shakes. This was when it hit me. This was when I knew. Every decision I'd made, every instinct that led me to that moment had been wrong. It wasn't the world that needed to change. It was me. I generated so much suffering, enough to go around, but that couldn't be me anymore. She wipes her eyes and composes herself. To move forward, I'd have to become someone new, someone different, someone better. I would need to become Tessa 2.0. That's our 10 pages. That was lovely. Thank you, guys. All right, terrific stuff. Ted and Haley, can you briefly give us a little background about yourselves and the project? Ted came to me with this idea and with the whole concept, really. And to be honest, I was definitely a bit hesitant to begin with because I think he opened with, I've got this idea for a comedy series. Someone convinces a therapist to commit suicide. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's not funny. And he's like, no, it can be funny. It's going to be funny. And the more we talked about it and the more we started to develop the character of Tessa, the more I kind of realised that there was something really interesting here and there was definitely something pretty funny and funny in a fairly unconventional way that I was really interested in exploring. Yep. Yeah, I, I've been kicking around this scene in my head for a long time. I imagine it as a feature film where it was, a, it was originally a male character where they basically make a similar speech to their therapist and the therapist says you know what i agree and shoots himself in the head um, we toned that one down but the idea was that he'd go on an apology tour like across australia and go and see all the people that he'd wronged but then Haley and i were both just watching a lot of the same sort of modern comedies and they'd be kind of dramatic and a bit dark and a bit surreal and i sort of slotted that in and then i had an idea about the a character who, who, who that happens to, they talk to a therapist to kill themselves and they decide to radically reinvent themselves by doing mm. the opposite of their every instinct. It's kind of like that, that speech from George Costanza. Do you guys remember the scene where he says, my name's George, I'm unemployed and I live with my parents? Right? Yeah. He, he spends the rest of that episode trying to do the opposite of everything. And I kind of wanted to see that through to its logical conclusion. And then I went to Haley and I was like, all right, this is this really a stupid thing. And Haley was like, that's, 
terrible, but I somehow convinced her and Haley kind of built up a lot of the character and, and definitely that professional world of the pain of bureaucracy that can draw the depression out of yeah. a person. Now, we've just read a script which is, it's actually 10 pages, but I understand that the idea of this is a number of episodes which are half hour, but this is a condensed version. For our submission, something we, we applied for, we had to supply a 10-page sample and we thought because it's... It's so anchored to that moment. We'd rather compress the pilot into 10 pages rather than just do the first 10 pages because you wouldn't really get a sense of what it was going to be from those 10 pages exactly. Are you able to tell us then very briefly, now we've set it up, where does the story go? How many episodes do you envisage and where does the story go? Just just give us an understanding of like that basic narrative arc. It's six episodes as it stands. So she, in doing sort of going against her instincts and attempting to do the opposite of what she would do, she takes a sort of menial administrative job at an NGO and she's living with her family again and her brother is getting married and we have kind of set it up that she's kept a relative distance from her family and she then offers to organise her brother's wedding. So she's sort of trying to become this new person and throughout the different episodes she kind of develops new relationships with people ones that she never expected and sort of starts making different decisions which have kind of hilarious and ridiculous outcomes and contribute to sort of the woman that she's going to be we kind of built up not not exactly by design but we're kind of following this a bit of a a episode structure where say for the first half half of the season there's an inciting incident like for episodes say two three and four which is like it's a choice point where she could do the thing she normally does but then we have no story so she does the opposite of that gets herself embroiled in some kind of scandal or some kind of drama and then she gets another choice point and she has one instinct one instinct was which is the complete opposite and she has to find a third option which is yep. some sort of a symbol or a marker it's her having to to essentially choose what aspects or what attributes will organize this new identity that she's creating but later on what starts to happen is she doesn't know what's her instinct and what's the opposite of her instinct. She just has mm-hmm. two opposing instincts and equally not identified with, with either of them, if that makes sense. So she's really got to reach in and find out, well, who is this new person? Can I ask just one question? This will really, I think, help us get our heads around this idea. In a nutshell, who is Because it sounds to me like this is about this woman's journey from who she is at the beginning and who she is at the end. So in a nutshell, who is she at the beginning and what does she become at the end, what, like, what do you see in terms of, you know, what she is and what she evolves into? The kind of difficulty in writing her as a character is that she doesn't know who she is. So it's not so much that there's this clear-cut idea of who she is at the beginning. She's more our symbol of millennial depression where you're partly kind of self-indulgent in a way. It's partly just incredibly overwhelming and crippling because she doesn't have a strong sense of what she wants who she wants to be and there is throughout the season I wouldn't say like we we want to sort of carry it on to kind of a second season and possibly a third you know just have it as an ongoing conversation so the idea of this season is not so much that she becomes clear true version of herself by the end but more that she grasps a sense of what she might want from life that we can follow on into the next the next season there is definitely a pattern of being faced with a problem or or some choice point where she has to kind of take responsibility and act and she abdicates that runs away from it throws venom at it does everything she can to not have to make a choice later on what she starts to do is forego those first instincts and really connect with other people 
even if, if it's people who she thinks is, is uh, not, you know, people she might want to associate with, but, but she looks past her judgments and really sees what's the same about us all instead of what's different. And by the end of it, I would say, although obviously we don't, we don't fully realize that she's, she's growing as a person by being there for other people, for caring for other people and for building healthy, honest, open relationships. I like the idea that you're setting up somebody who is essentially adrift and lost. And it sounds like potentially from what you're saying, Ted, it's not so much about her finding herself as it is about her investing in other people and finding worth in that. Is that well, kind of well, yeah. When she steps up, she thinks that her brother's marriage is going to be a problem for a few reasons which we can talk about. But she looks past that to try and organize the wedding. And in the end, she really kind of has to swallow a lot of pride to actually get the wedding to happen. And this is a nice little moment. She's got a colleague called Social Media Sally, Haley's creation, obviously. Uh, she's basically in a cult, not a relatively benign cult, but she's in a, in a wacky cult where they like to sing a lot of strange songs. And Social Media Sally is the epitome of everything Tessa hates about other people. But choosing to go against her instinct, she goes with her to this cult meeting where they all sing and you know, get together. And she makes the observation that Social Media Sally is actually much happier and much more connected and much more close to other people than she is. So she's able to divine out something that she can then take with her into her journeys and go, all right, I don't necessarily want to join a cult, but there's something to learn from even there that I can then apply in, in subsequent interactions with other people. Justin, I feel like I'm monopolizing the probing here. Did you want to jump Just in? Before we sort of jump into the workshop side of things, is there is there anything in particular that you feel you need help with that you'd like to focus on or you just want our impressions or uh, I feel like we're still finding the tone of the world and I think yeah impressions are really useful in terms of what what you're connecting with and where you see the humor working best and all that but the line between do you want to go fully absurdist with this or do you want to do we want to go more absurdist with it or do we want to sort of keep it a bit more human reflective like are we really connecting with the characters or are we maintaining a distance from them and I think yeah we're we're just figuring out what we want from that between the two of us. Tone's like a really fine needle to thread and I obviously want to hear your general impressions but like whatever your your intuitions are about that it will really help us particularly because we have such a sort of diverse cast of characters and Hmm. so much politics in each of those characters i'll just mention because it's not obvious from what we read but tessa's brother is a israeli phd student who's writing about microaggressions in the jewish community and he is very very left-wing very very uh, what, what you would say, the opposite of a Zionist. And he's engaged to a man, a Palestinian man, who is actually very, very pro-Zionist. And I hope that is the strangest coupling in all of fiction ever. Both of those types of people obviously do exist. Mm. But I thought to put them together in a gay marriage would be fun. Not in a gimmick way, but like, it's a really strange coupling and possibly stranger than real life, but you can actually get a lot of sparks, a lot of interest about it. And one of the things, just talking about the tone, in the last episode, we want their wedding to get threatened by everybody. I want everyone on every side of the political world and actual terrorists to be threatening to blow this thing up because it defends everybody. And I think that's funny, but I want to, it's not a cartoon. Like I want to take it a little bit seriously. Where yeah, I think it would be funny if, if you wrote it straight. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's comedy with a straight face, right. I think if you write it wacky, then it's not going to work. Because the ideas themselves 
are bizarre enough and the humour, I think, will come from playing it dead straight. The, if exactly. you have the wacky ideas and then sort of do this, yeah. then it's going to mm. fall over. Yeah, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a sketch <laughs> show. It's just you, you're always, yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I won't say any more, but that's the sort of thing where finding the tone for that and finding the way to play that is actually going to be, that's a big challenge. So I, I'd love to know what you guys think. I was thinking it would be terrific to focus on the series, but I wouldn't mind just talking about that 10-minute episode maybe to start with. I know that you have a few notes there, don't you, Justin? Did you want to jump in with yours? I really like the tone. It feels a little bit subtle at the moment. I feel like it could be a bit stronger and I, and I like the dialogue and the pacing of it, I really like. Of all the characters though, the only one I get a really clear read on is Channa, the mother, and like you get a read on her like right from the start. So I think there's a lot of work that could be done to elevate the other characters and make them just as equally memorable and unique. Sorry, to be, to be clear, do you mean with the exception of Tessa or including Tessa? No, including Tessa. I don't get a, okay. a read on Tessa yet, even after that 10 minutes. And I think it's because I think you said she doesn't right. really know who she yeah. is yet. And I get a sense that like, I don't really yeah. get a sense of who she is yet either. So I find it hard to sort of relate to her at the moment that's interesting because in this version she doesn't really do very much except you know cuddle a duck (laughs) that yeah no that's absolutely that's absolutely fair so what we need to do and if we're going to send this thing out Haley, maybe we should think about this but for the full version is those little scenes those little kind of vignettes with the family they have to be things that happen which she reacts to and makes choices that will reveal her character and how she reacts to her mother and how she reacts to because at the moment those scenes are saying look how you know boring and miserable and difficult it is to be around my family it's not revealing how she relates to and interacts with them so that's not there and maybe Haley, if, yeah. we, if we for that just for that 10 minute thing maybe if we're going to rework that those scenes she needs to do something like to actually do something to respond to something yeah i essentially agree with that and i think that there's definitely room to to develop that i think it's tricky and I find it really interesting to sort of build a show around a character who's not even, you know, it's not that she's vanilla ice cream. She's more just, she doesn't know what kind of flavor ice cream she is. And going on that journey with her, it, I feel like it does run the risk of an audience maybe not knowing how to identify with her. Or I feel like you could hit a sweet spot where they completely identify with her because there are, you know, there's a huge catchment of people who have no idea what they're doing or, they're, yeah. you know, they have a crazy family or they work in a, boring job and they don't know where they're going with it and seeing that person on a screen would be really interesting to play with in in my humble opinion but I think yeah I think there's definitely room to sort of have her react or act on something some things a bit more I think we want to be watching her have like a moment where she could do something really really positive that we know would make her happy and we know would generate goodwill around her but because of her flaws at least in this first episode she doesn't do it and as an audience we should be empathizing we should understand why she's making that mistake but we should also be screaming just just do the right thing just say the right thing just don't do that horrible thing you're about to do if we can get that feeling then we'll be on board with the character yeah i think it's because like in the the beginning like i don't get a a clear handle on why or how her instincts are wrong other than the fact that she says it that they're wrong but we don't see any evidence to support that her choices and her decisions have been wrong yeah like if you look at like jim carrey's character in yes man like first part of the movie you know we're constantly seeing him being a no to everything Mm. and the impact that that has on his Mm. life and so then when he suddenly changes to becoming a yes 
it's a huge step for him. He starts out with little baby steps and then it takes over his life. So I guess my question is, in the beginning, is Tessa like a no person and then she becomes a yes person? I think she, I think she, um, possibly the difficulty we're having and what we're trying to flesh out is, I don't know if it's so much that she, her instincts are wrong so much as she's quite passive. I think she, like Ted was touching on a bit earlier, she's indecisive and she struggles to act on things. So, I mean, maybe we're sort of trying to sort of uh, identify her in two ways that don't work together, like the the idea that her instincts are wrong and then also that she's quite passive. And I see her more as being less that she's made all the wrong choices maybe and more that she's she's just been too passive in her life and she's not she's not actually acted on what she wants because she doesn't know what she wants. I felt the opposite. I thought because she seemed to be the aggressor in her flashbacks and things you know at a workplace and stuff so that's another thing i wanted to bring up but but just on that point about being passive for the story to work i at least i feel like she needs to be actively passive so when mm. there's something where she had like we need to position it so that he is a choice and she doesn't she's got decision paralysis and that way she's she's abdicating her responsibility in some sense she's she's choosing not to choose and that's, it's still active so we can get on board, but, but it's not like... This character actually took me back to The Graduate and yeah. that kind of stuff that was going on back then because I'm no millennial, but I can certainly relate to being adrift and lost. I love The Graduate and that is a character which I think aligns quite well with Tess. That's interesting. For me... I'm relating to Tess probably more than Justin is at this point. But the thing about The Graduate is you start off with a character who's adrift and lost, but then there's a really strong story that, you know, that character gets drawn into. And maybe that's what is missing at this point. You've got a character, but they're just kind of, it's, a, it's an adrift character. And then that sounds like that character is drifting from situation to situation. So if there's like really strong narratives that that character can get caught up in, and maybe that's how, that's where the strength of the show is going to come from. Can I maybe describe, because Justin, just for your perspective on the character, can I tell you about what is in like the, in our notes for the, for the full first episode in terms of just, just a little bit about what happens to see if maybe that triggers. Sure, something. Yeah. So Haley, correct me if I'm, if I'm missing any of this, but she goes, she's trying to decide where she should live and not in a fantasy, but in, in an actual scene, she goes to her mother's place and she wants to kind of confide in her mother about, you know, I'm having problems and I lost my job and my life's full. And she's immediately overshadowed by her brother who announces his engagement and a very kind of controversial engagement really for everybody. And this thwarts her in two ways. One, because it steals attention from her, but she's also a bit jealous. She's also a bit resentful. So she chooses to at first congratulate her brother, but in a, in a subtle sort of way that signals to us at least, and probably to them too, she's not quite as happy as she could be. And then they pry it out of her and she chooses to drop in these little bits of poison. I don't think this is a good idea because this, are you sure? She just basically throws shade. Is that the expression? Throw shade? Mm. Right, so she throws more and more and more shade until she's pissed everybody off and she's in trouble and she can't be there. And she goes to her father's place and a similar thing happens where she basically, she can't look past herself to just let things be and she causes more problems we haven't got the father thing worked out exactly because we think the, the mother stuff that that house will take longer but yeah the, does that does that give you a bit of an insight into what we're going for 
Does that sound interesting? For me, I, there are conventions in this series that I think you could use to maybe yeah. emphasize those points, like using the voiceover. That's a great convention to use to illustrate this because this show is all about going from opposites, right? So to me, like I think the opening of this 10-minute scene, I think, could be a lot stronger and you could use this convention to illustrate that, give the perfect opportunity for juxtaposition that can be capitalized on. So like my feelings are whenever you have a voiceover in a series, especially in comedy, that it is there to serve as an insight into the true expression of the character in opposition yeah. to what you're actually yeah. seeing happening on the screen. And that also serves as a comic device. So for instance, if your character's voiceover is saying, nothing to see here, I'm not that interesting, then the exact yep. opposite yep. should be happening on the screen. So the juxtaposition being that what she feels is interesting to us, the audience, is just another ordinary day in the life of her. And, yep. you know, and that's kind of what draws you in. So like, if you imagine if you have someone alone sitting in a car sobbing and the voiceover says, don't let me keep you, I'm not that interesting anyway, you know, you put that against, say, you have a, a woman in a hospital gown teetering on the, the ledge of a bridge or a building, a crowd of onlookers below, traffic backed up, police and rescue services abuzz, and a voiceover says, don't let me keep you, I'm not that interesting anyway. Yeah. You sort of mm -hmm. immediately, you're hooked in by, oh my God, <laughs> who is this woman and what's going on? Like, Because her voiceover is saying exactly the opposite of, but that's more of how she feels inside. And you could use that convention, you know, when you come up against those choices and stuff, you know, her voice might be, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that. Yeah. But then she says, yeah, sure, no problem, that kind of thing. Voiceover is one of those things we still haven't decided if we want in the show. We know we want like some kind of internal narrative. Yep. One of the things that we, we've done recently, and this is a new development, and this might take this conversation on a bit of a tangent, but, you know, why not? We contacted Melbourne musician and comedian, also from a Jewish community background like me, Jude Pearl, to potentially co-write with us and, and maybe even star in the thing because she's written a lot of great songs about mental health that have a have it like a dark comedy element to them so we are thinking that there might be a musical component to the show as well that's the next phase when we write it out when we tease it out so we might want to be using music because i think Haley, if i'm not mistaken when i said can i can i write voiceover you said just this once because we're not going to do it in the actual show we're going to obviously hash that out. but I think I'm, well, for me, I, it's not so much that I'm completely against voiceover. I think, and I think that this show, particularly with a sort of passive character like Tessa, certainly to begin with, you know, you need something. You need like, you know, we've been talking about using fantasy sequences or some something to kind of get inside her head and, yeah, show the, the sort of the internal struggle or the interesting contrast that you were talking about, Justin. But I see this show quite... Like one of my big influences is Fleabag. And I feel like Fleabag pulled off a lot that I, A, think other shows haven't necessarily done that. And B, I wouldn't want to sort of be piggybacking on Fleabag too much. And the whole director dressed to camera and all of that worked really well in that. But I wouldn't want to do that with this. And then voiceover feels similar to that. And I kind of, I'm sort of just really interested in challenging ourselves to find unique, new Tessa 2.0 ways to sort of play with these kind of things. So music or fantasy. Okay. So do you think you are going to stick with the the voiceover for that first episode? Because you're going to rewrite it as a half hour, right? Yeah. Don't know. Don't know. I, I don't know if we're going to stick with voiceover. Yes to the half hour. We're going to have not, to. Don't know about. 
Yeah. So we're going to have to hash that out. It depends if it becomes a musical or not. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it, it may change. Can I talk about the structure of that first 10 minutes and potentially the structure of that first episode? Because one of the things, I, I'm, I really enjoyed it and I love the ideas in there, but for, um, one of the things which didn't quite work for me was the way that that suicide came about because it just seemed to come out of nowhere. I mean, I know what you're going for. And I think there are ways of making that work. And I just wanted to throw something out there just to see what you thought. Yeah. Before you, before you say what it is, can I just ask you a question? Because sure. I don't want to bias myself. Do you mean something about setting it up more clearly in the opening scene? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So tell me what it is. I'm excited. Well, one way of approaching that would be to open with the suicide itself, like an ambulance, flashing lights, or a body being loaded onto. And then we go yeah. into how we reach this point. <laughs> because you'll be wondering how how on earth do we end up with a body? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Whole episode, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. we go, we see all this other shit, and it culminates with this guy taking a dive. That's one thing. I also thought that when she comes in and she's having this meeting with him, if we have him really distracted. And she's trying to communicate to him and he's only half listening because he's got other shit on his mind and she's mm. not aware of what it is until he takes a dive. Then for the audience, we'll be, oh, that's why he wasn't focused on her because he's already in that kind of, also, I know what you wanted. You want her to drive him to suicide. Well, not, not exactly, but I think what you're saying is correct because I've, I've, I've talked this scene through with a, with a few people and one of the things that, we could play with it isn't played with right now is the idea that part of Tess's problem is that she's self-absorbed, yeah. you know, in the, in the most sympathetic way possible. So the fact that she's oblivious to her, the psychiatrist in front of her is obvious inner turmoil mm. is actually quite funny. And we could play with that. And so when she realizes that her self-absorption actually contributed to this incident, yeah, that can can further fuel the incentive to change. I felt also, yeah, and, and look, I felt also that her actually saying that word suicide is a line that she stepped over at that point. Yeah. I, I felt like it would be more effective if she would kind of got to the point where she was saying, but what can you do? What can you do? What can you do? And then she turns around and the he window's an open and he's not there anymore. <laughs> Something like that. Mm. Just talking about fantasy sequences, does anyone, this is left field, but does anyone remember the fantasy sequences in Ally McBeal? Yeah. 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 Vaguely. It was a long time ago. She'll be oh, talking to someone it, and yeah. then someone will hurt her feelings and then it will cut to her being like yeah. thrown into a dumpster yeah. for like three seconds. It's interesting. Yeah. I had similar thoughts about that scene also in that um, I didn't feel like her argument was anywhere near enough to make him want to commit suicide and that uh, I had similar ideas to Cameron in that, you know, maybe like she's just too so self-absorbed in her problems that she's not even aware that he's in the background shredding documents and <laughs> getting texts on his phone and, you know, and then there's a knock on the door and he's like, oh, shit, and he jumps out the window because everything's sort of coming to a halt. But her self-absorption just sort of makes her completely oblivious. But then yeah. she feels like, she's the the cause of it or the other thing i had was if we go back to that idea i had of 
you know, her standing on top of the building or a bridge at the start that you could always return back to that scene. But we now find the reason that she's on top of that building is because she's trying to talk a therapist down from committing suicide. And it's actually the therapist that's Ooh. on the ledge. And that's, that's but funny. rather than, rather yep. than talking him down, she turns that into a, a, another self-absorbed therapy session for herself. And the same thing happens. He ends up jumping yeah. off because he just can't take it anymore. Yeah. That's nice. That is very good. Yeah. We sort of, it's um definitely something that Ted and I um, uh, are trying to hash out because I, I never bought the idea of the therapist committing suicide in the room to begin with. And I, I think that there's a real difficulty in making it funnier. I think it's more, I mean, the way we're talking about it now, I can see how it might work and I can see how it might be quite absurdly funny and, and everything. And I'm very, like, very open to discussing all of that. I just feel like there is, you know, watching someone commit suicide if you're then going on to do five episodes about somebody's mental health and their, you know, how, how they're coming to terms with themselves, like there's just a certain amount of, there's trauma yeah. that's involved that's in true. watching someone take their own life. There's just, I feel like there's a huge responsibility in yep. writing that. And I sort of had the safer approach of, she kind of has this session with her therapist. She's very like, maybe maybe upset at the end of it or whatever and she gets a phone call from her from the receptionist at the at the therapist's office the next day saying you know we're gonna have to cancel all the appointments because he's dead basically and she infers from that that it was all her fault and she's gonna have to turn her life around yeah I think you're right yeah I, I, I should have thought this through a little bit more because there is a there is a responsibility that comes with um depicting that sort of stuff on screen yeah that's true I was just saying, like, I think we'll we'll probably have to war game it where we'll just sit down, like, do beat by beat, like, 10 different iterations and then just start ruling them out. Because mm. ultimately, whatever it is, like, we, we have to get this right because everything hinges on that. And, like, I, I kind of want it to be darkly funny, but I think you've got a really good point as well about, like, it does need to, to echo throughout the episodes in some kind of a plausible way. We do have as one of the little plot beats. So we do try and refer back to it. We've got, we've got episode breakdowns. We refer back to it a bit, probably not as much as we should. But one of the trigger points for her kind of lowest point, I think in episode five is she sees the therapist's widow. Mm -hmm. And this triggers her, her like meltdown times 10. And that could be something we could play with. But I also mentioned, you know, we were talking about her arc earlier before. In the last episode, she has a, she has a half sister who's, also got depression and who makes a similar speech outside the wedding where the two outcasts are kind of hiding together, a similar speech that she made to her therapist in the first episode. And Tessa gives an opposing argument, I guess, and chooses life. Mm -hmm. So it's a little moment to show, okay, she's moved a little bit as a character and it's, it does echo that. But I think, I mean, I, in my very, very first version, like the, the feature film version, I had the character start dating one of the therapist's children with that young son or daughter of the therapist not knowing that the, mm. this was the patient who mm. actually talked that over. 
there's something there. I don't know what it is because we've stuffed all our episodes and maybe we need to excise some things, but there's something Actually, there. It's, it's interesting. You, you bring up a point that you just said that this came from a feature film idea because to me, when I looked at those episodes, those upcoming episodes, it felt like those six episodes were a feature film and it felt to me as though like if this was going to be an ongoing series, the thing that was missing for me in terms of making this a series was that there was no ongoing story engine that you could use to describe this, what this series is about. Cause each of those episodes, those episode breakdowns that I read, everything, every episode seemed yeah. remarkably different from each other. There didn't seem to be a sort of readily identifiable kind of style or flavor <laughs> to Feels like there's three or four competing subplots. It does, it do- and not one single A plot sitting on. Yeah, top of like it. you know, you look at a comedy yeah. series. Something that's easy to illustrate that is like my name is Earl. Like the the story engine of that show is that Earl has to, you know, he makes a list of all the people that he'd wronged in his life, and then he has to go back and make amends to each of those people in order yeah. to get his karma back, so that he can hopefully get his lottery ticket back but you can easily see that we could easily make a hundred different episodes from that same story engine we just find a different deed for him to you know to have to come up with and I felt like what was missing for me about this show was there was no immediately identifiable story engine and I think if if you can break it down to identifying what's the purpose what is the purpose of changing what you know if you can identify a goal for her to pursue in order to you know she's going to change her life around for a specific goal and in order to do something that's going to help you find what what it is and it could be something like in the aftermath of you know her therapist suicide you know a self-absorbed public servant chooses a life of absolute selflessness in order to fix her life you know, it could be something as simple as that. That that's a very clear story engine that we can go. Now we can actually put anything into this because if we take her self-absorption and absolutely flip it on its head, and she becomes the extreme opposite of that, then you know how you can write each episode. Just have her in her. This is her normal default is her self-absorption, but then she changes around and becomes absolute selflessness and you're going to get so much mileage from the comedy in her being selfless to the point where you know it's detrimental and i think it's going to clear up a lot of issues and but also it's going to give you a lot more areas to focus on it's going to make you be able to better define the stories that are going to suit what you're trying to to get to if that makes sense yeah I definitely see what you mean, and I I can see why it might not come across clearly in um in the ten page pilot or in the in the breakdown. But for me, in the thing with Tessa is you set up in the first episode that she's kind of stagnant, you know, like she's lost her job, she's lost momentum, she's not got much of a personal life. She's gonna have to move in with her parents and. She's kind of sitting with her therapist and talking about how terrible her life is and how she doesn't know what she wants. She just, you know, nothing means anything. It's all pointless anyway. But then with her therapist committing suicide by the end of the episode, 
that gives her a really clear moment of, oh, wow, I don't want that. Like she's probably, you know, and this, it'd be easier to sort of flesh this out or set it up in, in 30 minutes, not 10 pages, but like she's kind of, he's given her this really tragic kind of moment of going, oh, I don't actually want to commit suicide. So then you have a story built from that of going, okay, well, I've been stagnant for this long. I've thought I've, you know, everything was this horrible for this long, but I've figured out at least one thing. I don't want to, I don't want to commit suicide. Yeah, because Haley, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of this, but like she doesn't know what she wants, but at least now she, she knows what she doesn't want and that gives her right. something to move away from. Yeah. I think that's really, really, I think that's really strong. Yeah. I really like that because I've been sitting here thinking about that, you know, ever since you started talking about the way that suicide is represented on screen, I was thinking about that and to have an outcome from that, which is, I don't, as Ted says, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't yeah. want. That's a really strong thing and that's mm. a message and that would justify having that suicide in the, the suicide episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It solves mm. a few problems for us because we, we part of, I know like it's, it's, it's complicated to write these characters, but we know that if, if we're going to do this show the way we see it, it needs to be somebody whose problem is they don't know what they want, which is really mm. hard. Like it's, it's a tricky thing to write, right? Because mm. they don't have a clear goal, but if they know what they don't want, at least that's, that's one thing that they can move away from. And I mean, I just, now that we've formalized it, I'm like, yeah, it actually uh, potentially a lot of ideas. Well, I guess, I, I guess the, the, the trick is you can always write about what the character wants, but they don't have to get it but you're always trying to give them what they need as opposed to what they want. And so in the pursuit of going after what it is they want, they actually end up getting what they need, which ultimately is normally not what they're setting out to mm. get. No, no, I understand. But if, if, for example, her objective was to win something at the end of the season or she wanted to charm one particular guy or she wanted to accrue this job, this, this like, wealth or get win this job, that's... Haley, you know more about this than me, but that sounds like it's antithetical to honestly writing about a depressed person. Mm. Yeah, right? I think so. I think she. We have a story in episode four where the entire episode's built around fantasy sequences. And what we wanted to do was give her, like, this is when she's challenging herself to identify goals. And social media, Sally's given her this self help course thing. And she's trying to, the goal is to imagine your best home life, your best work life. And I can't remember what the other one was, mm. but oh yeah, oh yeah. What, what will people say at your funeral? What do you want? What do you want people to be saying about you at your funeral? And this is the moment before things turn terrible, where she really could start to imagine and set goals for herself, which is, I believe, you know, part of what like clinical treatment is. And then and it's, it's what the psychiatrist says to her in that, in that pilot. It's like, you still haven't set any goals. We've been doing this 150 weeks what's the point each time she has that fantasy each each fantasy gets interrupted by the, the other stuff that's going on in the story but the point is she lets it symbolically succumbs to all of her old habits and then spirals into all the catastrophe in episode five which we will let me just before i forget let me put this to you if just going back to what we were talking about before you know if she now knows what she doesn't want then maybe her goal you know because justin was talking about making sure for a story engine you've got that um you know that simple through line what are the what are the goals what is the character trying to achieve 
maybe for this character, what they want to achieve, having gone through this experience of seeing their therapist attempt suicide, whether or not it was successful, you can decide on that. She now knows, okay, what I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. So for her, the episodes are all about her purging herself of all the negativity that's in her life. And because I think you could get a lot of comedy out of her trying to recognize what's a negative thing and getting it wrong a lot of the time, thinking this is a negative thing, I've got to get rid of it. For instance, um, a critical friend, you know, that's something that I need to purge from my life. And what yeah. she doesn't understand is actually, that's actually her best friend because the only person who's being honest with her, for instance. By trying to identify mm -hmm. what's negative, yeah. what she mm -hmm. needs to get rid of. And sometimes she's absolutely on the money and sometimes she screws herself because she still hasn't reached the yeah. point where she can differentiate between positivity and negativity. Maybe that's something which would help you really drive, you know, this series forward. Hayley, what about if we kept, you know, we're talking about a device for like in a monologue. What if we kept the psychiatrist as like, <laughs> You know the war, like the 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 specter of death on her shoulder all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Someone to talk to. Yeah, yeah. I like maybe that because I think maybe the spiders can do duets with you. <laughs> zombie psychiatrist, idea. zombie psychiatrist musical. Yeah, that's that's the show. Well, I think what, what that's 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 like the other thing we've sort of kind of one of the other things that we're setting up or we try to set up in the first episode is that she also she's most herself in front of this psychiatrist that you know uh, aside from I guess like the flashback to work when she's clearly losing her shit and she's you know dropping phones and tea and stuff like that um that's that's out of hand but for the most part she kind of you know she feels like she doesn't belong anywhere she's a child of divorce and both sides of her family are kind of outrageous in their own ways and she works in the public service and is completely disconnected from her job and she kind of has built this relationship with a psychiatrist where she gets to vent all of this to him and then he ends up committing suicide. And she's like, I'm, I must be a pretty toxic person then and wants to turn that around. But I like that idea that yeah. he stays there then because he's the one person that she really yeah, feels strong. she gets to be her mm. around. Yeah, great, yeah, that's a great idea. Have you seen um, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist? No. It's a TV series where like a young woman discovers that she has the ability to hear the innermost thoughts of people around her, which are expressed through songs and musical numbers. Ooh. She runs an IT department at work, but, you know, she hears somebody who's, you know, got a broken heart or something and she looks across the room and then they're singing, you know, some kind of song and it breaks into some musical number, which mm. reveals their innermost sort of feelings and emotions but she's the only one that can see this happening and so no one else can can see when these people break into these song and dance numbers but uh, she has a best friend that she confides in and tells her what's going on and so she tries who turns out to be a dj so she's trying to then help her sort of come to terms or maybe you're supposed to help that person or whatever so then she makes it her mission to try and fix other people's problems whenever she hears them singing and then she always screws them up and it goes terribly wrong to begin with and then she finds <laughs> a silver lining but it's a great way because it uses song and dance numbers sort of like uh as an alternative to like the voiceover approach mm. as well because it's a it's a, a new and different approach to it so what i would suggest is maybe watch a few of those episodes you know it might help spark 
an idea of how to maybe you know integrate that musical element to the story yeah, in a new and interesting musical. different way the other the other show that does that that i've i have seen and which i thought of during developing Tessa 2.0 is crazy ex-girlfriend so i see like the two protagonists like um rebecca in crazy ex-girlfriend and then tessa in our show are quite different but that also you know they use music throughout that series and she it's very much connected with her spiraling mental health as well just a different very different kind of story i think but yeah i feel i feel like there were a lot of moments in that series where it really worked and then other times where it seemed to sort of just fall flat or they kind of just tried to lean on it too much and and all of that so it'll be it's an interesting way to to do things but i think mm. it could be really fun particularly because jude is very talented right yes i don't know like with zoe's extraordinary playlist her father suffers from a degenerative disease and so he can't communicate but she communicates with him through these fantasy songs that kind of happen so that's interesting. It can be a really great yeah. emotionally grounding scene or device as well. Or even mm. something about Mary, you know, there was always a playoff at the end of a scene. <laughs> You'd see these two dudes yeah. playing guitars and singing about, you know, like from an emotional point of view about what's happening in the story and then we cut away to something Yeah, that's, a, that's immediately where I went when Ted was talking about bringing that musician in to, to help with the writing. <laughs> yeah. Guys, we've actually been talking for quite a while. So is there anything else that you, just, just briefly, that you would like to talk through before we wrap it up? I have one question. On the, you know, th things that she does in the workplace, like putting the, the colleague's phone in a cup of tea. A bit much like we've already got, got one really outlandish thing happening at the end of the episode and i felt like i was stretching like the level of realism for comedy sake and i don't know where that line is yet i'm just wondering if you had intuitions about that i was confused were those fantasies or were those realities because i no, that, that's why she got fired my i read them as those were realities that's why i didn't think she was a passive character mm. Yeah, yeah. So that, I think that's a I think that's a problem. It's funny that should be a fantasy, Haley. Maybe. Yeah. Then we just need to figure out a way for her to get fired. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think I think you're right. Like it, it's. <laughs> that's what I mean when I said there doesn't seem to be any evidence to support that all every decision she's made has been wrong. Because it seems like she's very much in control of what she does. Mm. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Yeah. You could still still show those same scenes, for instance, but have her more in a passive. Maybe she's the one that has somebody pour coffee over her keyboard, or that she's the victim in all those things rather than the perpetrator. I don't know. Yeah, we have to think. Yeah, something we'll have to flush out for sure. Okay. Okay. So that's all we have time for in today's episode. So thanks very much to our writers. Ted Janet and Haley Rickardson. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck with the rewrites. And as always, everything discussed in today's 10 pages remains your own intellectual property and you reserve the right to use as much or as little of it as you like. And to any writers, producers, directors, or investors listening out there who may be interested in collaborating with Ted and Haley, how could they get in contact with you guys? 
So if you'd like to get in touch, email T-E-D-L-E-Y-E-S-Q-U-E at gmail.com. Thanks. Okay. And um, if anybody else has uh, a project that needs development, please email your log line, a brief synopsis in your first 10 pages to 10 pages. That's number 10, not the word. 10 pages podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and keep on writing. Keep on writing.